happy birthday. It is one year, uh, well, let's see, we are 364 days away from Redeemer's first birthday, and so we're celebrating today because uh, we are together. Uh, we, you know, kind of mentioned this at the top of our gathering, but it was January 8th of last year that uh, in the Bailey's living room, how many of you guys were in the living room that day? Okay, yeah, for the very first gathering of Redeemer when we said, uh, rather unceremoniously, this thing that we've been doing for like a month or two now, it's a church, it's a church, so uh, we don't have a name, uh, we don't have any idea about uh, what the future holds or what we might see in, uh, in the coming months or in the coming years, but uh, praise God that over this last year we have seen uh, this dream and this vision for a gospel-centered uh, community be planted and begin to flourish here in Fort Thomas. Uh, it is totally and completely a work of God that uh, really out of a lot of pain and disorientation for a lot of people, disillusionment with the church and even uh, struggling in, in our own personal faith in, in some ways, depending uh, on our situation, God birthed something beautiful and restorative and good in this church. And we just hope uh, and pray and are eager for the work that God will continue to do through Redeemer. And I'm really excited about that. Uh, New Year's are a time uh, when people think about fresh starts and new beginnings. And often it's a time when churches stop and reevaluate what is our vision uh, as a church and where are we going and where is God taking us. And maybe for you, that's a a discussion that carries with it a lot of baggage. Uh, I know that certainly myself, I've been in contexts where uh, I'm finding out what the vision of our church now is on on. January 1, as it's something completely different than I thought it was, and I've been in contexts where uh, I say, we're just repeating the same thing over and over again. You're just just preaching the same values and mission statement and all of these things here in January, even if that's good and helpful work. But uh, for us, I think this is an apt time for us to stop and do some reflection and some reevaluation about what God has called us to, where we think he's calling us to next, and the work that he is really starting uh, here among us. We shared with you guys a few months ago uh, at a at our at our very first members meeting or the, yeah the second members meeting I guess at our second members meeting uh, the vision from Jason and myself that we think that God is taking us uh, for our church and that comes with not only a vision but kind of a mission statement as well as well as a kind of a strategy and we outlined this kind of whole picture of what we think the work that God is calling us to here uh, in Fort Thomas and as Redeemer uh, we think this is what God is calling us to and we wanted to just take a moment here uh, in January for the next five weeks and just camp out on five different elements of that vision of that mission and just share a little bit about uh, what's on our hearts and what we see in the scripture uh, that God says about his church, but also specifically uh, what we think God is leading us to as Redeemer as well. And so this morning, I want to start with this kind of pie in the sky vision. For not what do we think that the mission God has called us to here and now, not, not something so practical, but where do we think this is all headed? All right, where do we think that this is going? Where do we hope and dream and pray and labor that God uses our efforts as a church to produce fruit somewhere way down the line? What is our 20-year vision? What does this thing look like for our kids and grandkids to continue this work? And uh, we shared this simple sentiment. Uh, that I think we see well-founded in the scripture and one that I hope is true for us as Redeemer, and that's this. Our vision is to cultivate a gospel movement in northern Kentucky. To cultivate a gospel movement in northern Kentucky. 
If you will, this morning, I just want to do something really simple. I just want to share what we think that is, what we think that means, why we chose that language, answer that question, what is a gospel movement, and then maybe land with the more practical, what do we do to make that happen? Because that sounds great, right? Well, I want to share from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, a lot of the heart and substance behind where this vision comes from. You will read with me. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Church, pray with me. Father, we just come before you this morning um, hopeful, eager, and expectant about the work that you will do and what you have called us to do. Father, we don't come this morning with any level of presumption stating that this is who we ought to be, or this is who we are apart from you. Father, we come this morning in humility, in dependence upon you. Father, asking by your spirit to grant us wisdom and insight, to see this vision of the gospel moving and flourishing among a people, and to have an idea of what that might look like for us here and now. Father, would you give that to us this morning? By your spirit, make alive this vision of the gospel. Give us an idea of what it would look like as a church to be a part. We pray. Amen. I said this this morning, I want to answer just two basic questions. What is a gospel movement? And then what makes a gospel movement happen? And I want to just uh, give you this morning a definition of what uh, I think that we see from this passage. And I'll help kind of translate all the components here in just a moment. uh, What we think uh, a gospel movement is. And this is the definition I'd offer you this morning. A gospel movement is a work of God to transform individuals, communities, and culture by the power of the gospel. That's simple, and there's a few elements in there that I want to unpack this morning that I think we can pull right out of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The first is that it's a work of God to transform individuals. When you see this passage in Titus chapter 2, we have a slide. Maybe, Trent, can you just throw that up there just so we can kind of keep our eyes on that this morning? It says that for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It's this idea that something new has birthed in the lives of God's people that no longer do we belong to the way of the world indexing our lives into this present age, but instead we have been saved from the godlessness, saved from our wretched and dead works, saved from the hopelessness that that was our situation in our sin apart from Jesus and have been raised and sent to a new way of living in Jesus. It says that it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to pursue something. We use this language often uh, in, in the church of repentance. This is what that looks like. It's a rejection of one way and a reorientation of our lives into a different direction. Titus 2 says one of godliness 
one of, of righteousness, uh, uprightness, or self-control. You see this, this gospel movement taking root first in the life of the individual causes us to repent or to put off the way of the world and to instead put on the way of Jesus. That is the work of inner transformation that God is doing in our lives through the gospel. And what I want to suggest this morning is that that's kind of at the root of how this gospel movement forms and the shape that it takes is at the center of this circle of God's work of the gospel. The first kind of layer of influence or the first kind of layer of, of, of change and transformation happens in the life of the individual. Uh, I have a slide here behind me that shows this kind of circle diagram Maybe Trent can skip over to that to kind of, I have a, I have a slideshow today, and it's probably the least organized I've ever been uh, trying to think about something. But, you know, so we'll pull those things together. Uh, but if you think about this gospel movement first influencing the individual, uh, that's, that's where we see that this work of God first takes root is in the lives of people who are experiencing the inner transformation and work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I think that we see throughout Scripture, but also present in this passage, is that has the effect of working out to the level of community as well. You see, the gospel is not just this good news of salvation and change for the individual. It, is, it entails the redefinition or the formation of a new community, the people of God, into his family. You see, I think one of the greatest threats, and when I say threats, uh, it's a feeble threat. Uh, but I think one of the biggest challenges, maybe I'll say it that way, to the church in the modern West is the atomization of the individual. And what I mean by that is in our culture and in our world, we have been experiencing this constant and consistent movement towards expressive individualism. No longer do we think about ourselves or define our identity according to the families that we belong to, the country we belong to, the culture uh, that we uh, assist in embodying. These things uh, have become maybe secondary or even tertiary uh, to the question of who we are as people. We have begun over decades and years and changing transformations in our culture to see really ourselves as the center to the question, who am I? And I think that that is a big challenge for a couple of reasons. One, this kind of cultural widespread movement towards expressive individualism has, one, resulted in identity formation being the chief aim in our minds of human existence. We think in our kind of self-centered, uh, westernized mind that becoming who I am is really the aim of my life. To shirk off any barriers or anything that stands in the way and to find my true self. It takes a certain kind of culture to be obsessed with Enneagram and all of these different personality tests and the Harry Potter sorting hat house, house test. I'm a Slytherin, by the way. All of these things are part of this just mindless lull of us participating in this cultural movement towards understanding ourselves better, identifying ourselves better, because that has slowly displaced so many other elements in the lives and imagination of Americans in the West as really the chief aim of our lives is to figure out who we are and to express that. That's been one result. The second that I think is kind of related to that is that at the center of that quest to find out who we are is the individual. No longer do we think about institutions. We live in an age of widespread institutional distrust. 
No longer do we think about our families of origin. If anything, they are just part of the matrix of what makes us screwed up and hinders us on the way of figuring out who we truly are and who we want to be. You see, it's placed at the core of this pursuit is the individual. Carl Truman, in his uh, excellent book, which is a massive read, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says that the intuitive moral structure of our modern imaginary places a premium on an individual right to define their own existence. This has not only become kind of in our hearts and in the culture around us, the chief end of our lives and the chief end of man is to figure out and express who we are, but the one in the operative seat is ourselves. That is a right that is uh, vigorously upheld and protected in our modern world. And the reason that I paint that picture for you this morning is not just to wax eloquent about uh, what we see happening kind of on a sociological or philosophical level in the world today, but to really suggest to you that we shouldn't be blind to the effect that that has on us and the effect that that has on the church. You see, we are influenced by this. There's no such thing as this uh, as a church who isn't uh, influenced by the world around them or isn't influenced by the culture around them, doesn't, doesn't, isn't shaped by the thinking of the, of the world that they exist in. Certainly we are, and we have to be aware of that. And this has an effect on the church that I think is powerful and something that we have to be aware of. Uh, I want to draw your attention to two statistics that, uh, that, that came upon my desk this week. One is this. of Christians, people who claim to be Christians, attend church two times per year or less. Okay, that's one thing. That's Pew Research from 2023. 53% of people who claim to be Christians attend church two times per year or less. Uh, In the book, The Great Dechurching by Jim Davis and Michael Graham, I would highly recommend this book to you. They they observe how a lot of these kind of movements towards expressive individualism in a secularizing world, uh, the effect that that has on the church is that it has become increasingly common in our age for people to claim the Christian faith or to think of themselves as spiritual people who love Jesus or follow Jesus but, but do not belong to any individual church. And the reason I I use those kind of two, uh, one's an observation and one's a statistic, the reason I put these things in front of you is to try to help illustrate and paint this picture that what is happening in the world and in the culture around us is certainly having an effect on the way that we think about not only the church, but the way that we think about the faith at all. You see, the Bible and Titus 2 paint quite a different picture than what I think that we see in the culture around us. You see, Titus chapter 2 paints this picture that God saved us, not that we would have some new identity to add into the catalog of our previously existing identities into this matrix of what makes us us, but it says in Titus chapter 2 that he saved us in order that we would belong to a family, his family, a family that is defined by our common identity in Jesus, our shared pursuit of holiness and godliness. A family who lives according to the counterculture of his kingdom in this present age. And the reason I think that that's so important for us to understand that these things move at odds, they are moving in two different directions, is because I think that it's vital for us to kind of have our eye on the movement that's happening in the world around us and might be influencing the way that we think as well, and to instead stake our flag in this vision for how the gospel forms communities. 
You see, the gospel doesn't just save us and change us. The gospel forms a whole new people, a people who belong to Jesus, a people for his own possession, it says in Titus chapter 2. That is vital for us as a church to understand that we don't just belong to this, this kind of identity that we add and on and tack on to our life, but that we belong to a people, God's church, through whom he moves, through whom he works, through whom he lives. And this is vital for us to see that and think about, that this movement in the church that we ought to be experiencing isn't one towards expressive individualism, isn't one towards atomization, but is one towards unity and fellowship and love for one another. One that is tight-knit. Some call it thick community. That's the family of God that is being formed in the wake of the gospel. A community that compels one another to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what he did. That's what this vision for the community that we see in the New Testament truly is. But I think as we kind of see the gospel working not only in the lives of the individual, but also in the formation of the community of faith around it, I think that what we also see in Titus chapter 2 is, a, is an example of what it looks like for a gospel movement to shape and impact the culture around us. You see, in Titus chapter 2, we see this uh, paradox, and you might have missed it because it's very subtle, right? It says this. It says that we are called to you know, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And here's this line, in the present age. Now, you might have missed that the first time around, and that's not just a useless title. It's like, right now, start living godly. Right now, start being holy, even though that's true. You should do that. But I think that it highlights an idea, a theme, a meta-narrative that's running all throughout the scripture. That God's people, his church, are called to live according to the new way, the eternal way, the way that is to come, the way of Jesus and his kingdom in the midst of an old way that is passing away. You see, this is the paradox of our lives as Christians is that God saves us and rescues us from the dominion of darkness, his word says, and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son according uh, where we live according to his light and his life. And all of these things are happening uh, in us personally at the individual level and in our communities as well as we operate according to the way that God has called us to. But we have to understand and acknowledge that all of that happens and takes place in a world that does not live according to the reign of God, that does not follow Jesus, that does not love him, that does not have any interest in participating in the way of life that Jesus calls us to. And here's why I think that tension matters to acknowledge here in this passage and why that tension matters to acknowledge uh, here for us as a church. It is critical for us to understand that this is the space and time that God has called us to to operate and live according to his kingdom. It's not a mistake. It's not a defect. It's not something that we can and maybe even should try to influence or change depending on our interpretation of what is to come. This is the age and this is the way that God has called us to, to live for, to model, to pursue his kingdom. Yes, on earth as it is in heaven, 
but in the midst of a people who belong to an old way that is passing away, in the midst of an earth that is, that is not following Jesus, that does not honor him. He has called us to this paradox of living. He has called us to this already not yet kind of kingdom where we live and operate according to the values of heaven and according to the values of his kingdom and structure and orient our lives this way in the midst of a world that certainly does not. And it's, it's vital for us to have that understanding and to just be aware of that and know that it's coming because we will experience friction because of this duality. And not only will we experience friction, and not only is that something to navigate or to manage, Jesus promised that we would. That is kind of essential to the way of life of his followers. He says that the world hated me first. Of course, they're going to hate you as well. This is the paradox of situations that God has called us to faithfully embody. And here's why I think that matters for our church. Not only did I say it's a level of awareness to have, that we exist in this way of friction with the world around us, but I think that we need to recover and pursue the New Testament's vision that our aim is not to critique the culture or to go to war with the culture, but to flourish a counterculture. To flourish a counterculture to be a people who pursue above all things the God's kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, to live according to this counterculture that is formed in the gospel, to be a people, Titus 2 says, are godly, self-controlled, and who live upright lives in the midst of an age that is passing away. If that's not countercultural formation, I don't know what is. That's what it looks like to be faithful to God in the present age. And our vision for the gospel movement uh, that we hope for and long for here in northern Kentucky has got to have an awareness of what that might look like as it interfaces with the world and the culture around us. It's not going to be one of domination. It's not going to be one of, of, of massive expectation to win this massive cultural war that maybe some of us feel and some of us don't feel but instead is a calling to, omit, to, to be faithful amidst a, a people who are not, to live godly, self-controlled, and upright lives amidst an age that is passing away. That is what the gospel movement will look like in northern Kentucky, a faithful people amidst a world that isn't. And we have to be okay with that and acknowledge that, and hold together in awareness and the friction that will result in our lives and in our community because of that. And furthermore, I just want to acknowledge that I think the downstream effect of a people who are living, as it says in Titus 2, zealous for good works, is that the people, spaces, and culture around us will experience some level of renewal. I think as we operate according to the values of heaven, seeking his vision of justice and mercy and goodness, as we usher in the will and reign of God among us, I think that it is inevitable that people will see in us a better way. So, I think that's a vision for what a gospel movement is in the life of an individual community and impacting and shaping the culture as well. But I want to answer the question, why this vision for our church? Right? Like, why plant our flag here with this idea, this nebulous idea of a gospel movement? One thing I want to say is that the discussion about vision is often a very presumptuous conversation. Uh, I have pretty much exclusively worked in, uh, in my whole time in ministry in either church plants or young churches. And often the discussion about uh, vision is kind of co-opted into this 
you know, what, what's this latest, greatest, newest thing that we think that God is calling us to that's going to excite the masses and uh, lead to this inevitable uh, work of God and renewal among us. It's often a very presumptuous kind of discussion. And the reason why is because it's not our prerogative to define what is the vision of our church. This is God's church. And he has a vision in the scripture that he gives us for what it looks like to be faithful to that. We can wax eloquent and draw on the whiteboard all we want about what we think our vision is, but either we are obedient to the vision that God gives us for his church or we aren't. But even though we acknowledge that here and want to be faithful to the vision that he gives us in his word, I think it's helpful uh, if we have a plumb line. Uh, if you're much of a DIY or handyman kind of builder, you know that a plumb line is help you, to help you keep plumb when you're building a fence or building a wall or something like that. It helps us know that we're staying on uh, the track, staying on the straight and narrow that God has called us to. And I think that as a church, just practically, we could use language and kind of this plumb line to know whether we're being faithful to the work God has called us to. And I think that one of the, the things that we see in the scripture is that this vision is clear. God wants to see a movement of the gospel transform lives and communities and influence the world around us. And I think that another thing I want to acknowledge is that that for a vision of our church is intentionally broad. Uh, what it doesn't say is to uh, make Redeemer into a megachurch and uh, have all the health and wealth and all the goodness that comes with being this massive big church and all of these things. Like It's not about Redeemer specifically. It's about the work of God in our area. And so it intentionally aims our sights broad. I used the language when Jason and I were chatting this week. It's kind of a wide angle lens to the work of God. And that's what we want to put in front of you continuously is a wide angle, not just to the work that God is doing here, not just to the work God is doing at Redeemer or in Fort Thomas, but really to our area and to stake ourselves and have commitment to that. And the last thing I want to say about that, about this gospel movement and why I think this is a helpful vision for our church is that I think it meets our cultural moment well. I think it meets our cultural moment well. If I look out in the world around me right now, maybe you feel similarly. What I see is widespread disillusionment, rapid dechurching to deconstruction, to people lost in this endless void of hopeless secularism. What the church needs right now, more than ever, is to discover anew that the gospel alone is the hope and joy and life. It is alone the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The church could use less readying ourselves in arms against the culture and more focus on becoming ready to be a hospital for the wounded and the weary and the faithless. We could use more readying to be a beacon of hope for the hearts and bodies marred by a movement of sexual liberation that didn't satisfy in the end. We could use more readying to be a fixture of hope for those who have experienced suffering in their lives and in the world, maybe even some of whom experienced suffering at the hands of people who perpetuated abuse in God's name. We could use more readying to be an example of reasonable faith to the hopeless skeptic. We need to be a church who is about the gospel. 
That is our vision. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our life. That is what sustains us. That is what we work towards. That is what we hope to embody. We need to be a church that is about the gospel as our foremost identity and focus and hope because we believe that it alone is the salvation, joy, and hope that not only we long for, but that the world desperately needs to hear. And so we set our flag there. This is what we long to see this gospel movement in our area. So I want to land with this. What makes that happen? How do you, anybody got any ideas? How do we do that? Sounds good. I want to see transformation of lives and communities and the culture as well. How do we do that? What makes a gospel movement happen? Well, the simple answer is that there isn't anything we can do to make a gospel movement happen in the strictest sense. You see, the gospel taking hold and transforming your life was not the result of some magical incantation that you prayed at Sunday school. It's not the result of you seeking and finding. It's not the result of any maneuvering or anything that anybody has done by human power or human standards. No, it is totally and completely the work of God. The gospel being birthed in in individuals and flourishing communities and impacting the culture is and will be totally and completely the work of God. However, what we can do is be faithful and ready for when God moves. And I think that what that means for us, I think that what that means for us is that we need to occupy some type of space between pragmatism and pacifism. You see, pragmatism says that in order to see this work of God happen, we've got to make it happen, right? So we're going to print flyers. We're going to have an awesome big band and smoke and lights and all of these things that might attract people to come see. We're going to play uh, music that perfectly tugs on the heartstrings so that people feel the spirit moving in here when they come in and really it's just the bass drum just pounding so loudly it feels like your heart fluttering. Uh, We're going to do all of these things and appeal to the culture in the perfect way and all of these people will come and they'll feel all the right things and then we will say, there we did it. A move of God happened among us. And I'm not trying to knock any one tradition or any one practice or anything like that. And I hope you don't hear that. But my point is that A pragmatic approach is the wrong approach, that there is something that we can do by our own power or by our own efforts to make the work of God happen. You see, friends, the work that we hope that God can do is nothing that we can manage. It's nothing that we could ever dream of manufacturing or creating. So we've got to find some space between this pragmatic point of view, but also this very passive point of view that says we can't make it happen, so we're just going to sit around and wait on God. And we'll just sit here silently on Sunday morning. And when the spirit moves, we're going to be ready. And we'll, we'll hope that you guys don't leave or get bored or fall asleep while it's happening. I think we've got to occupy some space between pragmatism and pacifism. And the space that I think that is, is one of faithfully cultivating. Uh, I'm going to give you an illustration. Uh, a story that I think highlights well what it looks like to faithfully cultivate. Some of you are familiar with uh, what has been known historically as the Fulton Street Revival. Uh, Historically, it's sometimes called the Third Great Awakening in the United States. Uh, It refers to this uh, series of events. Was that a hand wave? Anna, do you know that? Okay, sorry. (laughs) I thought she was saying, I know that. I was like, okay, that's that's one person that knows that. Uh, I I was happy. Um, But now you all know, because I'll tell you. Um, But this story really revolves around uh, one man's prayer and dreaming that resulted in a movement of God uh, in a generation, in a city, and really nationwide as well. 
Um, there's a guy named Jeremiah Lamphere who in 1857 uh, was part of a Dutch Reformed church in lower Manhattan in New York City and had this vision to really see the gospel move and work among uh, businessmen and women in New York City. Really wanted to see uh, a church that was able to meet and, and witness to these folks and to uh, and hopefully to see a work of God happen. And so uh, he's thinking about what does it take to see a movement of God happen? What does it see? What does it take to see this gospel really uh, birth and flourish among these people? And he maybe had a lot of ideas, and I'm sure a lot of other people around him had many ideas, but this is how he began. Uh, he started hosting a noonday prayer meeting on Wednesdays at uh, his church in Lower Manhattan. Uh, they didn't post about it on Facebook. Nobody tweeted. Nobody posted on Instagram. Not trying to knock any social media, but I'm just saying... This worked, and there was none of that. And so don't be hating on us because we haven't updated our Instagram in over a week. So anyway, he has this prayer meeting on noon on a Wednesday. And some of the reports vary about exactly how this uh, series of events unfolded. But uh, the one that I think uh, is probably the most accurate is that very first week he prayed by himself. He sat there at noon in that church building praying by himself. And the next week... He's praying by himself, and towards the end of the hour, they just held it for an hour, towards the end of the lunch hour, as hopefully many other men and women would come and join him, uh, one woman came in and sat down a few rows behind him, silently prayed. They didn't talk to one another, and they left and went home. The next week, there were six people there. Next week, there were 30. The next week, there were 40. And eventually, in the space of two months, at that one church alone, several hundred people were gathering in three different rooms all praying for a work of God to happen among them. No visionary, no mission statement. There's a church name because it was a church building, but this wasn't associated with any one particular church's ministry. And they began praying. Well, eventually they ran out of space. And so some other churches around the community that were a lot larger than this small, tiny Dutch Reformed church uh, said that they would host the same thing. Two months later, or less than two months later, they had not only maxed out their space, but several other offshoots of prayer meetings had begun at the same time on Wednesday at noon throughout the area. And a few months later, this had not only taken hold all across uh, churches in New York City, but it had started to crop up nationwide. There's churches in New Orleans, and Philadelphia was the first one. Uh, there's churches in the D.C. area. All of these kind of cropping up and participating in this weekly noonday prayer for God to move among them with no specific idea or no specific vision for what that looked like looked like and in less than three months there were tens of thousands of people gathering now not only once a week on Wednesdays at noon but every single day of the week at noon to pause and pray in all of these different locales for the work of God to happen in their communities but also thinking about what that might look like in the country as well and the effects of this uh, historians believe is that it this one singular meeting uh, from Jeremiah Lamphere in 1857 in the church in Lower Manhattan sparked a nationwide revival we know as the Third Great Awakening. The church had been in decline for three decades uh, leading up to the 50s, right? So since the middle of the uh, 1920s, the church had been in rapid decline. Uh, and an estimated 474,000 people over the three years following this prayer meeting joined Protestant denominations. That's a massive Overhaul, a massive revival and a massive change. And historians estimate that as many as half a million to a million people came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of these flourishing church communities and people hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ and calling on his name. All from this one simple prayer meeting that one man was faithful to host in his church with no expectations, 
No notions of grandeur, just patient waiting for the work of God to happen. Hoping, staking his life, staking his time, staking his resources, directing his energy, making it his preoccupation to see the work of God happening. You see, church, we can make the error of trying to be pragmatists and manufacture some work of God or something among ourselves. Because we long to see it happen, and even with the best of hearts, we can try to do the things that God has called us to, not in the ways that he has called us to do it. We can also be so passive that we maybe even begin to doubt in our own hearts that a work of God is possible. That we might ever see a generation call in the name of Jesus. Maybe you look out at the world with a certain degree of hopelessness, and that directs your heart towards passivity. That if God wants to do it, that's a great, but I don't even know, so I'll put my hands in the air and just sit around and wait with expectation. No, church, I think that pursuing and seeking a gospel movement, a work of God, looks like faithfully cultivating. Not by pragmatism, not by passivism, but by faithfully cultivating. And what I mean by that is preparing the soil of our lives and our communities for the work of God to take place. You see, we can't manufacture a move of God, but we can labor to become the kind of people through whom God moves. We can labor to be the kind of people who are faithful and available and ready. That's what I hope for our church. I don't have all the answers. I didn't want to plant a church. Jason didn't want to plant a church. Nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to start. Uh, a new, nobody had these notions of grandeur about this sexy vision for planting uh, some cool, hip, young church, even though you guys are all cool and hip and young. Um, but what we do, what we can do, and what we want to do, and what our heart and our vision is, is to stake our lives on a movement of God that we can't, that we can't manufacture, but one that we hopeful or we're hopeful about and we patiently long for and we labor diligently to prepare ourselves and our lives and our community for um i just want to close with this this is a weird way to close because i'm closing with kind of just this pie in the sky list of aspirations about our church Uh, but tim keller reflecting on the very story that i just told you about this third great awakening made the observation that historically what we see that when God moves in supernatural ways and there's an outpouring of the spirit and revival happens. There are typically five characteristics that are true about communities through whom that happens. And I think that these are apt aspirations for our church to just meditate on at the beginning of this new year. The first one is solid teaching of the word. Boom. Done. (laughs) Kidding. But meaning that we elevate the word is authoritative, trustworthy, and good. That we're a people of the book as some folks call us, that we stake our lives and, and really orient ourselves around the goodness and truth of God's holy word, that we commit ourselves to not merely being hearers of the word, but doers of what it says as well, as it says in James. The second one <clears throat> is one of extraordinary prayer. You see, the Bible is filled with extraordinary moves of God that ought to compel us to pray audaciously. I think that if we really encounter God and his word and see the work that he has done beyond our expectations and beyond our imagination, that ought to incite in us some degree of audaciousness and trust and hope in this work of God to happen even when it's something beyond our reach and beyond our control. When we see the work that God has done in preserving and keeping and flourishing and growing his church, we ought to see that this is a God who we ought to 
ought to call upon every single day and every single moment to continue that work among us. It invites us to pray audaciously. Uh, for our church right now, I want to just give you an idea of what I want that to look like here at the beginning of this year. As Jason and I were chatting this week about really this vision for our church, and I was telling him I'm going to share this story, uh, we had the idea that we ought to do the same thing. And so we're all going to move to New York City. Um, I'm going to be the pastor of a Dutch reform. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> right here, in honor of Jeremiah Lanfear's faithful work on Wednesdays at noon, uh, for every remaining Wednesday at noon, we're going to open the church and invite you, if you can, to come here physically and pray for the work of God to happen. We're going to use this word, cultivate. We're praying that God would cultivate faith in our lives, that he would cultivate a community around the gospel, that this good news would mark us and give us a witness and also change and shape our lives. We're praying that God would cultivate our witness in the world around us and in the culture. And so for three weeks and the remainder of January, we're going to gather, and each week we're going to pray about each one of these levels, the individual, the communities, and the culture as well, praying that God would cultivate this gospel movement through us. So we're going to do that. We'll share more information about that, but every Wednesday at noon, we'll meet in this nicely redesigned office, and hopefully it won't be purple by the time you're here this week. Corporate prayer every Wednesday at noon in January. The third thing Tim Keller <clears throat> remarks is that there is always thick community. Uh, I used that phrase earlier, but what he means is that it's not wishy-washy, thin community that doesn't really have any stake in one another's lives, but it's real loving fellowship and thick community. I think for us at the beginning of this year, reevaluate your life and reevaluate your commitment to the family of God and ask yourself the question, where can I increase my commitment to God's people? Where can I increase my commitment to being around community that not only compels me in my faith, but where I can be of help to those around me as well? Where can I pray for one another and confess sin with one another? Where can I practice all these 60-some-odd one-another commands in the New Testament? Now's a good time to reevaluate and think, what does it look like for me to carve out space for that commitment in my life? Because we need thick, solid community for this work of God to happen. The fourth one is bold evangelism. Friends, I just want to invite you to pray for opportunities and for the Spirit's emboldening to share the gospel with your neighbors and friends. If you've ever wondered in your life, when's the time for us here at Redeemer to start sharing the gospel with other people around us, start telling our neighbors about the work that God is doing among us, here's your invitation. It's right now. God has called us to participate in this work of making the gospel known, to preach his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to invite people to index their lives away from the way of the world and its death and destruction and into the way of life that is the way of Jesus. God calls us to this, and the time is now for us to share this good news with a world that desperately needs to hear it. I want to encourage you right now, pray for one person. I want you to pray this whole month, for one person that you believe God might be calling you to share the gospel with. Maybe that's somebody you know their name right now and you say, I've been trying to, to work that out. We've been having those conversations. That's fine. Maybe you're saying, I don't know any non-Christians and so I don't really know even who that would be unless I just start walking down the street. That's fine. Pray for that also. I just want to invite you, start praying for one person that God might call you to share the gospel with this month. The fifth thing is a pursuit of justice. Uh, and by that, what Tim Keller means is people who are seeking God's kingdom, 
in, in operating according to the values of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, church, I just want to invite us to pray that God gives our church a vision for what the justice and compassion and love and mercy of God's reign might look like here and now. I don't have this like wonderful, well-drawn-out vision for what doing justice as a church looks like at the moment, but more to follow. But right now, what we can do is pray for what does it look like here and now? What does it look like to operate by the values of heaven here and now? As I said at the beginning, and as you might be well aware at the moment, uh, this is probably the least organized I've been. Because when I think about the question, what is the vision for our church? What do we want? A million things come to mind and a million relevant little contours come to the surface about what we need to be aware of and what we need to be praying about and what we need to be doing. But church, the, the thing that I just want us to land on is that we just need to be in a posture of expectant, dependent, but hopeful and eager expectation that God can and will move among us. And if you're not there, if you're a cynic, if you're a skeptic, I'm praying with you that God breaks that stronghold in your heart the way he, I want him to break that in mine. That, that we would have an eagerness and excitement about a fresh work of God among us, and that we would seek that by faithfully cultivating. Let's pray. Father, we end by just asking for that. That you would... Make this movement of the gospel happen among us and in our community, in our area. Teach us what it means to be a part of that, to be faithful to that. Teach us what it means to seek that well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.